Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram, Eric Mathy and Nick Brandreth. Hello, Andrew. Hello. And hello, Eric. Hello there. And hello, Nick. How's it going? It's going well. It's great to have you here, Nick. Thanks. Pleasure. Right. First of all, I just wish to thank Jim Fitzgerald for being our guest. Um, it wasn't really last week. It was like three weeks ago um, since, uh, since we had Jerry on, Jerry? Uh, Jerry? Jim on the, uh, on the show um, talking about <laughs> carbon printing. And, his, uh, and we almost talked about his lens collection as well. Um, and more on that later. Um, so thank you very much for being with us, Jim. And let's start the show as normal, although it's going to be a pretty short show by our standards so we're going to try and keep this first bit uh, relatively short but that usually <laughs> that usually goes right out the window every time i say that um so uh andrew what have you been up to do you just want me to talk about large format things not just general large format uh yeah i've been pr- making so. some prints i've been making some prints but very exciting um i bought a camera um which was Wonderful, because I'd got a 30-year, 30 years in the same company. Can you believe it? 30-year long service award. They they, they put up with you that long. Yeah, I know. And and then I leave at the end of the year, so I'm actually entering semi-retirement. But I'll still be working for them five days a month. But anyway, so I got a a wedge of money from them, for, and I bought a laptop so that I can finally... um, do things on the laptop that I can't do on the work one, you know, because it's all kind of locked down and and stuff. But I bought a Chroma camera snapshot handheld 4x5 wooden technical version or something. So (laughs) what do you think of that? And Simon, I'll just just, um, say this as well. Simon has also bought something from Chroma, but it looks disgusting, I have to say. (laughs) Oh, come my, on. My, uh, my Chroma, my Chroma uh, snapshot camera is the funkiest thing going, uh, and I'm really excited. And I'm going to go and uh, collect it in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I'm going to go up and meet, uh, meet, meet up with Steve and hopefully visit his new workshop. Uh, so that'll be fun. And I'm going to also take up my double my dry plate holder that I backed on Kickstarter, and he's going to just loosen it up a little bit for me. He doesn't know that yet, but he's going to. So the snapshot. So I'm going to use the snapshot for a bit of backpacking. Not that I do much backpacking. Okay. And um, walking around photography with large format. Sweet. Well, if he didn't know he was going to do something with your dry plate holder, he will now. He will. Yeah. He will. No, Jason Lane said in another thread somewhere that because uh, someone said oh, some of those a dry plate holders are a bit stiff and mine is really stiff and I'm worried I might actually break one of the dark slides as I pull it out. So I think um, um, Steve is going to do something with it. don't know what he's going to do, but something. So that's it. That's what I've been up to. Bought a new camera and I'm very excited. Uh, apparently the bellows were fitted a couple of days ago and the helicoids arrived from wherever he buys his helicoids from uh, today. Excellent. I mean, you've, you've shared some pictures as well in the group and on Instagram as well, haven't you? I think. Yeah. So yeah. People can see uh, what it what it looks like, and it does look good. It, it's uh, it it's a it's a, a, a cracking thing. No, no, you have to uh, when when you buy this, you have to tell uh, Steve what the lens flange distance is. Flange focal flange focal mm-hmm. distance. That's it, isn't it? You know what yeah, that is. Yeah, that is exactly it. And the way you do that is to go to 
Graham Young's homemade, is it Graham's or Nick's? One of those two has a, a website with all right. this information on it. Graham, isn't it? Yeah. And you find your lens and mine is uh, the, the only 90 millimeter lens. because I figured 90 would be about right. Sort of 28 millimeter sort of equivalent. Um, so I've got a Nikon F8. Um, so anyway, I'm going to do that. So that was, that was um, I gave him the measurements for that. And you get a little spacer bars and then you have a helicoid. And if you want to use different lenses, you just you swap the spacer bars over to give you a different depth so you can still focus at infinity, I guess, or something. Yeah. Now that, that's, that's a really yeah. cool way of doing it as well because the, the – Generally speaking, though, in the, especially in the three D printed world, is you you change the cone size, yeah. Um, whereas this, you you change yeah. the the studs or the spaces instead because it's it's still yeah. using bellows. So it's a it's a uh, it's a more versatile system, if you like. I think so. Yeah. At that point, don't you just use a, a bed and like the standard movements and just sort of skip the posts? I don't know. I'm just thinking. Anyways, continue. <laughs> Well, let's um, keep keep keeping it with uh, with don't know. with keeping it with carbon and uh, sorry, not sorry, I'll just give it away there. Uh, Chroma. <laughs> um, I've uh, this this evening, this very evening, um, Steve has uh, sent over a picture of, of my new uh, camera that's coming over from uh, Chroma Towers, uh, which is a, a carbon adventure. Which I, I have, we have spoke about this. I just remembered um, because we we were talking about um, the custom. Uh, bellows design that I went with, and mm. um, and then the two of you um, then shame me um, into potentially that it might not be as clever or as smart as I thought it was, um, but I think it looks good anyway. But what, that's nobody really looks at the bellows when you actually see the picture of this thing, though. Um, it's, <laughs> it's just how bright orange, how really bright orange the front and rear standards are. Uh, the bellows, the bellows look great actually. Yeah. Um, it's just what yeah, possessed you, great. what possessed you to go for tango orange front and rear um, uh, plates, you know, um, standards? Because the the normal carbon adventure is not orangey enough. <laughs> it's just, it's Nick, if you haven't seen this, an image of this yet, it's literally the type of orange you'd wear if you were going deer hunting. No, I, I saw it. I said it'd be perfect for the Northeast right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You'd be safe, my friends. Like, they would not shoot you or mistake you for a deer. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I, I took the the... I have a Shenhao 4x5 is like my main shooting camera and uh, it comes with this kind of chunky leather handle and I got rid of that and I just replaced that with some blaze orange paracord. Um, so if that makes you feel any better, I that also does. have a little blaze orange on my 4x5 camera. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. This Not is, as much as you do. But no, a little well, bit. you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get, you'll get there. Um, <laughs> so uh, so uh, I, I, there's a few, there's a, there are a few reasons. There's a good commercial reason as well, because I'm going to be, if people want to have different colored uh, front and rear standards for, for Steve's carbon cameras. And um, I have an arrangement with Steve that uh, they can come to me and I will make them for them. So, um, so if anybody does want to have a, uh, a brightly colored or not quite so brightly colored uh, carbon adventure camera, then um, have a word with Steve and he'll have a word with me and we'll work something out for you. Um, but um, there was another reason as well. There's so many reasons. Oh yeah. The, the main reason though is I'm a large format photographer and I, and I want to shout it loud and proud. People look at my camera. <laughs> Couldn't you have just got a t-shirt instead? <laughs> well, yeah, you could, you could, but, uh, but no, they, they, I mean, 
people people gravitate towards these cameras anyway so i just want to get even more people to gravitate towards yeah. it and we can just spread the word about just how amazing these cameras are so uh so that's uh that's that's one thing and the other thing i've been up to is um been doing quite a bit of, of work for the for hamish gill and the pixelator uh digitalizing thing that that he that he makes and sells and uh i've just finished a prototype uh, mask stroke insert to allow nine by twelve large format um, digitization of uh, that almost four by five size film. So uh, that's that yeah. mask has just gone out for testing, and uh, with a bit of luck, it will pass, and uh, and you'll be able to buy them from me, or you can even download it for free when I I'll put it onto Thingiverse. So uh, that's going to be freely available for anybody to download if uh, if they have a, if they already have a printer. So, um, so, that, so that's that's me. Uh, let's move quickly on to Eric, um, moving house, Eric. Yeah, which means I've, I've pretty much done absolutely nothing uh, photographically for weeks now. Um, but it does mean that months down the road after we've unpacked and sorted things out that I can build a darkroom, uh, which I'm very excited for. Uh, I have interest in a Additional like enlarger, but I'm highly interested in putting in a UV unit and doing like gum oil or calotype or uh, large prints of that nature. So I'm, I'm super excited to do that and then also make my own uh, sheet film. Oh, that sounds good. But and then the only other really exciting thing is uh, remember how Wayne was talking about uh, his partner Alana, um, how he was going to build an 8x10 camera off of reclaimed wood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, she reached out to me and uh, pinged me about building our lens for that camera and it's just one of those things that's really really cool to have happen because I don't know if you've seen her work but her portraits are absolutely stunning like her work is really yeah, the, really really nice if um, people listening want to see the work if they go back to the Wayne Martin Belger show and the show notes if you look in the show notes there's some links to Elaine's What's her name? Yeah. Elaine, Elaine, Alana. Anyway, um, Alana, Alana yeah. to her um, to her website. Yeah. So uh, yeah, her Instagram is amazing. So mm -hmm. it's pretty cool to have somebody that talented be that excited about having me, a hack of all things, build a <laughs> lens for them instead of you know an actual optical engineer. So uh, I'm looking forward to talking with her and getting that project going. That's, that's really really cool. And you just just mentioned yeah, there sure. about um, making your own sheet film and making your own emulsions. Mm -hmm. That's, that, that's yeah. I was going to say that that sounds like the kind of thing that Nick might have something to say about that. Oh, I, I got a few things to say about that. <laughs> 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 that's actually how I met Nick. Is I reached out to him about um, Kodak Bichromes. As I recall. Yeah, the two-color Kodachrome. Correct. Yeah. No, those are neat little things. I mean, it's, just, it's really cool when you can see real ones in person. And, you know, that's the type of thing that you end up seeing in Rochester, you know, because you don't know what ends up in people's basements around here, which is kind of fun. But, I mean, there's a whole world of possibilities, you know, with making your own emulsions and things like that. And it's really fun. You know, uh, it, it, it's the type of thing that's easy to do once, um, but then it becomes technical 
if you try to if you want to do it over and over again and you know make it part of your regular practice um you know so you need a little bit you need a little bit of precision but you also need to be able to you know it's funny i i know a lot of people that are into making emulsions and it's just um like I said, you, you get the you get the real tech nerd, and then you get the real sort of like artists, you know, free spirit punk rock attitude, and you, you can't have too much of one or the other. Otherwise, you're no fun, you know. Because um, right. if you're too punk rock, you'll never get anything consistent, and if you're too technical, all your pictures are boring. <laughs> <laughs> You know, for lack of no offense, you know, but hey, sometimes nope. pictures are fun. But you know, boring, boring is very subjective. You know, so it's like it, it, it's all comes down to what makes you happy and what tickles your fire. You know, what's what's interesting to me is probably boring to someone else. So it's like it's it's. Yeah. I, I don't like to you know kind of be that person to say like, oh, this is good or this is bad. It's whatever you're into. You know, if you're into taking pictures of, you know scantily clad women in abandoned buildings and that's art to you rock on brother you know but if like you know if you want to think of more conceptual things and stuff like that or you want to photograph pools of light in the corner of a room and say that's art you know hey it's, it's whatever makes you feel good <laughs> yeah your dog agrees and honestly i'm lazy i won't say i'm lazy that sounds bad i'm i'm technically not gifted so making my own emulsion is probably one of those things that I won't do consistently. I'll probably just like rolly black magic. Hey, that works great. That'll do. You know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's fun. And I really enjoy it though. Cause it's like, I, I'm that type of person where it's like, you know, I, I, I do, I know when to, I know when to loosen up and I know when to tighten down. And it's like, you know, there's a, there's a part of me that really enjoys that precision you know, an accuracy and like being a technician. Um, but then there's also part of me where it's like, I kind of just, you know, I switch gears. It's like, I don't ever kind of exist in one world or the other. Um, you know, I try to float between the two. Um, and I, I, at least for me, that's my happy medium is being able to kind of, you know, ride that line. And I think that's why I am where I am is because I can ride that line so well. Um, but it, it's a, it, it's it's really neat, you know. And it's like you said, you can you can just go buy the Rolly emulsion, but it's also fun to make your own. And then it's like, well, what's perfect, you know? And it's just like, well, I'm after making something that is really good, but like I get to a point where it's like, you only need to be so nerdy about it, you know? Because I I meet a lot of you know I know people that get you want to get really deep, and it's so easy to just go deeper or deeper or deeper down that rabbit hole. But you know, to a yeah. certain point, it's like, what? Why? You know? It's like. Are, yeah, you know, because what's the end goal? So make some pictures, right? You know, if like if your end goal is to make ultra fine grain emulsions with specific characteristics, and you know, you want to grow really extreme grain sizes that are you know exactly cubes or something like that. I mean, I guess rock on, you know, like whatever, whatever makes you feel good, go for it. But you know, it's not for everybody. So, <laughs> well. Speaking of that, I guess not to jump onto into Simon's usual uh, place in this, but you said this is why you are where you are. Uh, where are you? Because people probably don't know that you, Nick, have a vocation that is has a lot to do with 
emulsions and photographic processes for like a day job. Like sure, a dream should I dial back for a sec? I people. can get into that in a minute if Simon wants to finish. No, his... no, no, no. I, I yeah. was, I was, I was going to um, possibly chat a little bit more about make, making your own emulsion. But I think that's probably an episode in its own right, isn't it? So uh, mm. I, I, th I think um, what we perhaps what we should do is get, is sort of knock this back to Eric again and. Uh, and then bring it back to you and, uh, and for Eric just to give a, a proper introduction to our guest. That's if Eric was... <laughs> well, you, you've thrown him now because he's never done it before, you see. So, yeah, yeah. Sorry, and you literally... I, I'm doing this on my phone. You literally just cut out when you're saying, and then Eric, <laughs> 10 seconds of blank. <laughs> I'm like... Well, Eric, what? Um, for, for your for your benefit, <laughs> Eric, uh, we've we've decided this is actually a really good time to actually introduce our special guest for for this week. So oh. uh, you you can take that away. Oh well, great! Our special guest this week, this podcast, this month, uh, and I'm hopefully he'll correct me if I slaughter his name because slaughtering the last name of our guest is a time honored tradition. Nick Brandreth. Hey, nailed it. <laughs> Sweet. Um, who works at the incredible uh, Eastman House in Rochester, New George, York. George Eastman Museum. I have to George correct Eastman you. Museum. Yeah. Thank Yeah. Well, when I was going to, to college at Formerly RC, Rochester, George we just called the Eastman House, right? Yeah. Um, so the George Eastman Museum, which is the back end of George Eastman's original massive mansion. Um, it is a playground for photography, both current and historical. And Nick works in their historical department, as I recall, um, with another amazing guy named Mark Osterman. And Nick, correct me if I'm mistaken, you are also a grad of the same institution I went to, the Rochester Institute of Technology. Tigers, baby. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Is that some weird American frat thing going on? Did you? Oh, it's just uh, there. Rochester, it's the Tigers. So, like, that oh, would be it? their mascot. So, it's just like, you know. Oh, for school football? No, we, actually, they don't have yes. a football team. <laughs> they're, yeah, they, they're un, they've been undefeated since 1964. <laughs> <laughs> my daughter, well, my daughter have... was at the University of uh, Atlanta in Georgia. And, of course, I, when we went to see her, I couldn't, I couldn't really get my head around how obsessed a town could be, or whatever Atlanta is called. Uh, no, it was Athens. Sorry, that's right, Athens. So uh, Athens oh, was obsessed right. with college football. You know, the dogs they were yeah. called D A W G S. That's like yeah, dogs, but it with really an American depends draw. on where you are in the states. Like you know, I think like in sort of like in Texas and some of those southern states, football is really big. But then when you get into like the South, like the Carolinas, like basketball is big time. And then if you're into like if you're in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Ohio, like wrestling is like sort of the primetime sport. Um, but, you know, oh, football yeah. really does dominate those the big markets, though, because like that's mm -hmm. where they, you know, they yeah. make mad money off those students. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. But that's another. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, we both went to RIT. Yep. And so, yeah, I do. I'll, I'll just I'll just keep going. I work at the George Eastman Museum um, for the past almost 10 years now um i've helped run uh, the historic process workshop program with mark osterman um i actually took 
to sort of origin story there. I took a workshop with Mark. Mark looked at me and said, hey, I want someone to kind of be an apprentice for about a year. I said, I don't know if I could do that. It would be unpaid for free for a year. And I was like, ah, you know, I don't know. And I had some things happen in my life. And I kind of looked at it that that, that sort of moment, you know, if we were watching like a Kung Fu movie where it was like, you know, like <laughs> I'm ready now. And it's like, I have to climb the mountain, you know, and there's like, you know, and like that was basically it. Like I, I kind of put myself on this journey. And before the year was over, the museum hired me full time. And um, I've been there ever since. Um, and I, you know, I brought a lot to the program and Mark's been really great, um, you know, in my growth, um, you know, as a, I guess you could say as an artist and as a historic process technician, you know, my official title is historic process specialist, but you know, I, I really like my job, if you want to boil it down to its essence is, um, I, I make complex information digestible to people. Um, and that these people, you know, through workshops, you come here and you can learn a skill, um, to take into your, personal practice uh, as an artist um, or, you know, you might be a conservator or a curator um, writing a book or trying to understand something that you're putting together to, uh, you know, uncover a bit of history. I've worked with a lot of different people who wanted to look at negatives and may have wanted to say like, Hey, what is this stain here? I can't even remember who it was, but this woman brought some stuff in and you know, they looked at it and she's like, why are these things on the negative? And it turned out that the guy was trying to process his film extremely quickly and stuff was just getting laid on top of each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I'm able to help people figure yep. some of that stuff out. But the main bulk of what I do is to bring people from all around the world to the museum and teach them about uh, historic process photography. Um, and we go through everything from, you know, daguerreotypes to amber types and tintypes to dry plate emulsion making for plates, films, and paper. Um, and then we have uh, esoteric stuff in between there, like uh, camera lucidas and um, how to do photogenic drawings and early photo processes and things like that and kind of weird stuff. We teach carbon printing, platinum printing, uh, collodion chloride printing. I, I mean, I can do 20 different processes, um, you know, very well. Um, and I have a few processes that I would say I, you know, I'm, I, I'm, you know, a master level proficient in, um, particularly emulsion making being one of them. Uh, but you know, once you start getting used to some of these processes, they all kind of, you know, once you unlock one or two things, the rest of them all make sense. You know, they still all play within a specific set of rules. Uh, they're governed by a lot of the same sort of, uh, you know, like rules and um, restrictions. Um, some things are different and perform a little differently, but again, they're not so insane from one another. Um, and, you know, they all kind of, you know, there's just certain sets of chemicals you start to see that sort of play into what you do and how you do certain things. Like, for instance, uh, dichromate, you know, with potassium dichromate, you can make a carbon print. That's a non-silver printing process. But you can also make a hologram with a silver gelatin pr uh, emulsion. Right. You can also make a hologram. You can also make a photographic negative. You can make photographic positives. You can make uh, any number of things. So uh, to be able to be in this position, like I help to give people the creative tools to push their vision forward. Um, we're in a particularly interesting time now because of the covid and the pandemic um, uh, where 
again, my job requires people to travel from faraway places and come and stand in very intimate settings for long periods of time. You really can't social distance very well in a dark room. So the way that I, we've done things for the past 10 years is about to, it is changing dramatically. Um, I've been teaching online workshops now where I can interact with people um, just like we're doing right now. So again, you're both in England and California, but we're able to sit here and have a conversation. There's no reason I can't teach you how to make an emulsion right now. All I need is a couple extra camera angles and some safe lights to cover up my screens, and I can teach you how to make an emulsion right here. Um, the thing that you lose is the hands-on, uh, which is very valuable, um, but it's not necessary to learning how to do something, but there is something to being in person with me and you're trying to learn how to pour a, you know, emulsion onto a glass plate to coat your own emulsion. Or, you know, Eric, you know, I can sit here and talk to you and show you on the phone how to coat some film by yourself, but it'd be a lot easier if I could stand next to you and say, no, you got to pull it like this. It's a quick snap, you know, but we can still, I can still give you that information online, but it's not the same as being in person, but I really like teaching online because the, the disadvantage is sure you lose some of that in-person intimacy um, and some of like the little nuance of that. But um, I can reach people all over the world. And the thing about the workshops is, you know, they, they are they are very are we, we try our hardest to make sure that our workshops are fairly priced. Uh, we're, you know, cause we're aware of other people out there in the world who are offering workshops and things like that. So we make sure that our, our prices are competitive and we're not so, uh, you know, expensive that no one can afford it, but really it does, you know, if you, you know, you spend, let's just say a, a, a workshop costs $600 for three days. Um, you know, I think most people can afford that, but where it becomes tough is when you have to fly here from England, you know what I mean? And then find a place to stay. You know, I took my workshop because, and it's easy when you can drive there. And I think this is, you know, relative for all workshop programs. And this is something that I think with learning that's fundamentally changing and COVID has really kind of bent, you know, if anything, if the, let's just imagine this is a steel bar that was bending. I think COVID really finally snapped this and everything's changing now. So it's like, Again, the it, the best part is coming and it's worth that extra money to come with me and then let me take you into the collection. Like So our workshops are the best bang for the buck you can get anywhere because there's nowhere else in the world you can come and learn how to make a photogenic drawing and then go and see you know facsimiles and real examples of stuff that Talbot had his hands on. You know, to come here and learn how to make a 35 millimeter daguerreotype and then we'll get to go and look at a daguerreotype by daguerre or we can show you the first daguerreotype made in North America or the first daguerreotype made in Mexico, you know? So like being able to do that is fantastic. But now the challenge becomes how do we do this when no one can come here? So we're fundamentally like changing a lot of the things that we're doing and we're offering more stuff online. You know, Mark's been giving these talks, uh, which have been a huge hit. I gave a couple myself, the online workshops are really taking off, but uh, you know, it's exciting for me because now I love to teach people about photography, um, but it's really great that like now I have this opportunity, I feel, and I know the museum realizes it too, so it's ex extra exciting that we can reach so many more people, you know, and everybody knows what the Eastman Museum is, but again, it's just like, I'd love to go to Laycock Abbey. 
but it's not realistic for me to just hop on a plane and go on vacation to Lake Hog Abbey right now, you know, but, and, and again, that's the thing is like, I know there's a lot of people out there that, you know, can afford to come take workshops with us, but it's just not always practical or realistic to say like, yeah, well, I can come and take the workshop. That's no problem. But, you know, taking off the time to travel and fly here and, you know, all that stuff, you know, it, it could end up being two weeks off and not everybody has two weeks off, but it's like, now we can hop online on Friday afternoon and I can show you, um, you know, again, you're not going to get the week long workshop where you're going to actually make stuff and, you know, put your hands in it and you leave with almost like a mini portfolio at the end of the week, you know, because you get to make all this fun stuff. But the, the most part, I think we get two kind of people that come to take the workshop. So you have one people that, they, you know, they're there for the experience and then you have the other group of people that are there for the knowledge. Um I, I tend to think there's more people that want to come for the knowledge. That's why I ended up at the museum because I wanted to learn how to make some tin types, and then I was going to try to implement that in my professional practice. But I, I realized I'm like, you know what? There's other stuff here, and then I started exploring more things, and I'm like, look at all this stuff. And that's the best part about this. And we say there's the best time to be a photographer is right now because you can pick and choose 175 years worth of technology. You know, could you imagine what Daguerre would have done had he had a 3d printer, you know, like, uh, you know, it's crazy to think about that stuff. And it's just like right now there's so much cool stuff going on and it's really, it is, it's the best time and we can share this stuff and I'll, I'll shut up for a second after this. Cause this is one final thought. <laughs> Photography is cyclical, right? It goes and with most things in life are cyclical. Everything comes back around. And if you watch photography, there's trends, right? There's sharp focus, soft focus, sharp focus, soft focus, sharp focus, soft focus. You know, when I was at RIT, everything was super sharp, super, super, super sharp. You know, and it was Jill Enfield, you know, 10 lights making things look crazy. Martin Scholler with the crazy catch lights. Um, and now it's – I feel like we've kind of shifted back where like everybody wants to shoot with a pet's fault lens and everybody wants a swirly bokeh and all this stuff. You know, And you're getting this whole group of people now, youngsters – I say youngsters. <laughs> I'm so old. But you get, <laughs> you get younger people who've never shot with real cameras. All they experienced were digital cameras. You know, And like now they're like, oh, man, like look at this. Look how cool these pictures look. You know why they look cool? Because you're using real optics. Not that you don't have real optics in your cell phone camera but you're limited you know and like with a dslr or a large format camera you can slap whatever you want on there and frankenstein whatever look you want and i think a lot of younger kids or and i shouldn't even say younger kids i would say i should say people you know people who never really got into photography until they were older but digital photography made it more accessible and it made it less scary because you know to think like okay i got to spend all this money on a camera and film and then try to go out and take some pictures and then all of a sudden here i just spent 50 bucks and i got you know blank strips of plastic you know but now photography lets digital photography lets you get comfortable and lets you get into it you know and it, it it's um it, it's easier now to become comfortable and then say i want to try film so i can get that film look you know that creaminess right. because it, it's real film grains real you know nice optics are real but uh, the thing that's – you know, the point that I want to get back to is my favorite part of photography is the beginning of photography. Um, you know, when they first start discovering all of these different things, you know, kind of cuts off at like 1900 for me. Um, you know, once the, the gelatin emulsions there and then, you know, film starts showing up, that's sort of my interest begins to kind of wane. Um, 
but it was open source, you know, and if you go to the library at the Eastman Museum and you start looking at photo journals, you know, the British Journal of Photography, the American Journal of Photography, uh, it's open source. And just like this, you know, you had someone say, well, I tried this at my house and this happened and they send it to the journal and it gets published. And then someone says, no, that's dumb. That didn't work. You know, and then and then you have like trolls and stuff like that, just like Facebook now with these <laughs> Facebook groups, you know, and like people would talk about this stuff. And it, it's just kind of funny that, you know, we we've come back around to this. You know, it's more about sharing and being open and, you know, getting that information out there. You know, if you wanted to try to make a tintype 25 years ago, it would be really kind of hard. There weren't a lot of people out there. Now go to any city with, you know, a bunch of cafes and you'll find someone making a tintype. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's cool, though. I, I love it. I love that it's come back around and then it's becoming open source. And now we're able to throw the maker movement on top of it. And it's just buck wild, you know, Nick, <laughs> Nick. Sorry, Andrew here. I've got a question for you. Yeah, you, you, you talked about uh, youngsters, you know, discovering film photography, which, you know, we're all aware of. Um, you know, there was adverts on the TV the other night for Fuji Instax and Clearly, the age demographic was, I don't know, 15-year-old girls, I think, pretty much. Um, so you've got these, this generation trying uh, discovering film, you know, and pushing the prices of film cameras up. How, how, do, you, how do you move them from, from that uh, into what you're doing at George Eastman House, you know, get them excited about uh, the, the really early stuff and the hands-on workshops. I mean, do you see that demographic at all coming to you or is that a demographic that you'd like to work with? I mean, so I've been thinking about this a lot too. And again, you know, this kind of comes back to, you know, how are we going to change now? Because again, I don't see, uh, you know, I'm very cautious about, you know, trying to bring people into the dark room. We have to be very safe right now. And, um, even when we can bring people back, I still want to change some of what we do. And the way I think about it is there's a couple things. You're not going to get everybody excited about, you know, dipping their hands in chemistry and stuff like that. You know, there's a reason it kind of went away. Um, I think it takes a certain type of person to want to go down that path, but it's not it's not hard to excite someone about that. It's the same way. It's like, you know, why you get someone excited about watercolor painting because all of a sudden you can see what it can do. Um, and it becomes, you know, tantalizing. You're like, I want to try that again. What else can you right. do? And really for me, photography, and this is why we have that series now at the museum called dark room magic, because photography is kind of magical and it's magical in the sense because it, it changes right in front of your face. Um, but it's, not really magic. It's just chemistry, you know, and it's just like, but you know, that scares people off. I teach people how to make digital negatives. And until we get through the system of calibrating and making a digital negative, it freaks people out because I use some graphs and stuff and people see math and they see numbers and they see molecular weights. And it's just like, brr, they just freeze up, you know, because again, you do have your, your technical person, Right. But then I think most people are maybe more is it left brains, you know, where they're artistic and they want to learn empirically. It is easier to learn empirically. But the fun part about 
Instax is that you can do it and you get an instant result. And it's closer to digital photography, right? Because it's fun. It's real easy to take a picture of you and your girlfriends, right? Click and your boyfriends and click. There you go. We got all of our buddies together. And, you know, the digital camera is awesome, but it's very sterile. You know, there's no change to it unless you get real kind of funky, you know, with what you're, how you're using the camera, it's always the same, but with the Instax film, it's some, it can be different every time, you know, and then it could be dark and it could be light. And there is, you can empirically start to change that. And that's how I think, I think digital photography is the kind of bridge to get people over. You have to tickle their appetite with something like Instax that doesn't require any thought, you know, you can do it and you can have something tangible. And then to have that tangible thing and to feel that, that that you know that uh what's the word i'm looking for there that just that like electricity of holding something like look i just created this it came from nothing um then you can get those people over there but really what i'm thinking more and more about is i'd love to try to develop some sort of program with the museum and if it's not with the museum maybe it's on my own it's somehow but like really like photography is the best tool because we want to talk about younger generations and bringing them over to other technologies but you know, I and we're talking about 3D printing, so we're, we can all appreciate the I, STEM is too limiting. It has to be STEAM. It has to be you know you have to have arts in there with your engineering, your technology, and your your mathematics and things like that. Because if you don't have creative engineers, you don't have creative solutions to things. You know what I mean? You just you end mm-hmm. up with the same crap over and over again. And photography is the best because it's very easy to teach a creative person to be technical and develop a role of film it is harder to teach a technical person to be creative but when you have something like photography where you can have a a faster response you know i feel like you can teach that technical person you can give them creativity a little bit better than you can if i hand them a pencil and a a piece of paper i often like to draw and paint and i practice other we'll just say art disciplines um, and I feel like that's important as an artist, you know, the same way as if you're a, a football player, you need to run sprints and you also need to run long distance, you know what I mean, to make sure that you're in shape. And I've used that for you guys, football, not American football, but like English football there, you know, but you have to make sure that you can run long distance and be, you know, short like that. But it's really important to teach kids how to be creative because if you if you're not creative you don't have creative solutions to things but also photography gives you visual literacy and that's something we need more than ever these days is visual literacy and there's just so many people and that's why unfortunately you see a lot of older folks nowadays that get you know preyed upon by uh, you know internet scams and things like that because you don't have technological literacy but visual literacy is more important because you have to see like what is fake news? When are you being lied to and you know given propaganda? And I'm not getting political here. You can choose whatever side you want. But it's like to say like how do you know what you're looking at? You know that becomes so important and especially now because I feel like the photograph doesn't hold the same weight that it used to hold perhaps in the 50s or 60s, but at the same breath I think the a photograph holds more weight than it ever had before. Particularly video but you know the fact that everybody's armed with a camera now you wouldn't have some of these social movements happening if you didn't have everybody having a camera right you know so and to understand how you get from that point where you know talbot wipes some salt and silver on a piece of paper and then you get to you know 
the 9-11 flag being raised by the firemen? Like, how do you get from there to there? And like, all of that is so important. And, you know, through photography, you know, I, I think that's the best way that you can start getting younger kids interested in more things. But uh, this is kind of a bigger answer than I guess that you're looking for. Um, you know, and again, to kind of bring it back is to, you know, you have to give them something instant that they're kind of used to, but then it's just about making it fun and it, it can't be kind of boring. And, you know, photography can may be made very boring. You know, we're going to talk about densitometry right now. When it, when it really boils down to it, doing film photography, if you can cook dinner, you can do film photography you dip a piece of plastic in three different baths at the same temperature for three different times i mean how it's not that hard (laughs) you know well i really love to see photography used as a tool you know more to help you know you know connect with people and things like that particularly younger kids i was gonna say one of the interesting things that i found over the last i don't know four or five years as i started shooting more and more film is meeting really young kids like high school kids and how fascinated they are with the film cameras and the concept of actually holding something in their hands that they produced because if you think about it there's an entire generation that everything has been created digitally I'll digital images digital <laughs> you know and and as a result like and how quickly that can go away. They, they, they've never really produced anything that they can hold. And um, when they see it, they're fascinated by it. And they realize, at least the ones that I've talked to, and it, and it seems to be like Instax, coming back to Instax, um, to be like a need, like a subconscious need that they don't realize they're missing until they see what they're missing. And like, you know, you pop out an Instax and people are like, can you take a photo of us? And they walk away with this piece. I mean, let's be honest, a piece of crap little photo. Like it's, the insect quality is not great. And, and they're just, they're thrilled beyond measure. Like you could do a whole cottage industry b- before COVID. Ah, but it, tour spaces Eric, sorry. With a, with an Eric, I've got to jump in there because you said Intertax quality is, is just crap. Actually, it's not. The film itself is capable of resolving really decent pictures. It's just the, the point-and-shoot cameras, cameras that you give the kids. If you go and back yeah. the um, or you know, the Lomography Instant back for Instax Wide and you then take them from a, a crappy picture out of their you know, Instax camera and then you say, okay, well, look at this old camera here with, with bellows on. It might not be an old camera, it might be a new one, but to them it's an old <laughs> camera. And you put that Instax back on the back of it, and then you start showing them some crazy movements on the camera. And then you've moved it on a, a bit more of a level because you you know they're now they're now starting to see the possibility of what they can achieve with that instant medium. You know, because you could get But it's still it's still eight hundred ASA. Like you're still like your amount of actual it's still gonna be a super sharp, no movement, massive depth of field. You know, it's one eight hundred yeah, per second and sixteen, right? So it's not like the old like Fuji or Polaroid film where there is a, a, a variety of speeds That's true. and you can have a little bit more creative control. You know what I mean? I mean, you're right. The optics have a lot to do with it, but it's still not quite the same as the old like four by five Polaroid peel aparts. Absolutely. But if Nick, if Nick, if Nick has got those kids in George Eastman house and yeah. they say, look, start off let's take some instax pictures of each other and then he goes to the cupboard in the dusty corners of george eastman museum and pulls out a daguerreotype and say 
this is nothing new. Look, they were doing this 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would blow that would blow my mind and pro- probably blow the mind of the kids as well. Well, here, you yeah, know, I mean, I, I have something to kind of throw in here. Is like we talk, I, I talk about photography being cyclical and coming back around. So, like, let's look at the history of photography, and then we look at the carte de visite, right? And it was a popular thing to do is to get a portrait of yourself made and have several yeah. cards produced and you give them out to your friends like a trading card and you would collect pictures of your friends what do you think the intact that the intact the instact film scratches the same itch but in a modern context yeah. you know now it's not a formal thing because photography is so ubiquitous photography is everywhere and it's just integrated in your life you know photography was a little bit we experienced photography differently as children then they will experience photography now and like kids in 20 years are going to experience photography much differently than kids that born in 2000 um but again it's come back around again and it's cyclical but it's not a formal thing to go have a portrait made photography is now an informal thing you know and then that's why you have the snapshot and it's but it's that same that same thrill that same thing to be like look i have this picture of my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my 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 person in my life, you know, and I can take this home and, um, you know, keep that. And it's, again, it's cyclical. It just came back around, but it's just, we're in a different mask this time, you know? <laughs> and it's, and, um, you know, speaking of cyclical and it's, and the trading cards and stuff, um, that reminds me of a gentleman that the three of us were talking about possibly at some point in time having on the show, um, Ed Drew, who took and shot, you know, wet plate portraits during his, um, tour of duty in Afghanistan as a door gunner on a medvac chopper. But before he did that, you know, he went here to the San Francisco art Institute and for photography and is a really talented, you know, wet plate shooter. And so, you know, in the civil war, those, those tin types were made and sent back to families as mementos or we're going into Gettysburg. Now here's my portrait, you know, I love you. And they, that might be the last image that they would have, but it was taken instantly right there, either before or right after like massive battles or, or, um, you know, events of great importance in their life that they could bundle off and send somewhere. Um, and so it sort of went beyond just trading cards to your friends to like really important mementos and keepsakes, uh, for times when a person might not come out the other end. Well, sure, but then you're um, you know I, then you're into the whole post mortem thing and you know the idea mm-hmm. of death, things like that, and changing. Like, could you imagine yeah. if we shot post mortems now? People would lose their freaking minds. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it was yeah. a totally common thing to have a picture of your dead baby. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> that Dems was they the were time. weird back then, right? Yeah, <laughs> but it it wouldn't have been weird. It would have been weird if we were like, "Oh my God, how? Are, why are you doing that?" And they'd be like, "What's wrong with this fellow?" <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I really do think like photography is the great the, the the greatest way to kind of again to teach kids to be creative and to kind of expand their minds for other things. They don't necessarily have to go and be photographers, and that's one of the biggest I think misconceptions is that like. You know, photography, being a professional photographer is not really, you know, I I feel like shooting pictures might be like 60%, 50% at most of being a professional photographer. Um, You know, most of it comes down to being a business person. I know some people who are crappy photographers, 
and I'm not, I don't have to name any names because I could be referring to anybody right now. Crappy photographers. <laughs> they make a ton of money because they're good business people. And I know people who are fantastic right. photographers who don't make any money because they're terrible business people. You know, so it's like it, it can go either way. But I, I lost. I kind of forgot where I was going with that. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, we were actually just talking about that the other week with Wayne. And Simon and Andrew in the about pricing prints, right? You know, and, and feeling that however many pounds was too much for, for a beautiful made in the darkroom print. And we were like, that's that's not near enough, you know. And how Wayne at one point in time had a, a collector's group pass on one of his works because there weren't enough zeros at the end of it. <laughs> right? Yeah. They, had there been like at least one to two more zeros, they would have bought it. And he's like, that would have been, you know, I think $60,000. Yeah. I mean, that's really, yeah. like, I mean, if you want to start weird. talking about like the whole art world's kind of, it's kind of bullshit. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> hey, look at that. We, a guy sold a potato picture for a million dollars. Part of my friendship, I'm not allowed to curse in here, but a million dollars for a picture of a potato on black. It's not about, it's just about who you can hustle. You know, that's really what it comes down to, you know? <laughs> and that's the beautiful part about photography, though, is that you can hustle people and, you know, you can scam an idiot out of a million dollars for a pota- picture of a potato on black. But then you can also be someone like Vivian Meyer, who spends a lifetime making a beautiful beautiful work right and goes completely right. unnoticed but then the sharks show up afterwards and somebody else makes a fortune you know off your back but you know photography that's the thing i guess that's kind of where i was going with it is like that's my favorite part about it is like i do photography as a profession but like my life is kind of like the ouroboros it begins and ends at the same point it, it, it's just sort of fluid at now um you know because if i got fired from the museum tomorrow and and someone told me you could never do photography professionally again i would still do it just because it fascinates me and i i leave i guess i kind of i feel like i deviate further and further from like the traditional interest in photography um the you know the the more i do it you know because i've helped so many people make negatives and plates and prints and you know i know i can make beautiful prints and i know i can do all that stuff but like what really interests me is like it's less now about like the traditional process like make a negative make a print put it in a frame put it on the wall and try to sell it you know again my wife would hate me to hear me say i don't really give a shit about making money (laughs) you know i really it's like it's a necessary evil like i have to do it but like i would just sit in my basement and tinker and make interesting stuff and put it in boxes and then just leave it for somebody else to find when i die (laughs) just because it fascinates me man and again my interest because more and more it becomes more about light um you know and again less about you know making traditional pictures like i don't I don't have the thrill or the need to go out and make snapshots as much anymore. I still do. I, I have a roll of 35 and I, I really, two summers ago, I fell in love with the panoramic, those, those little Russian point and shoot cameras. Um, mm-hmm. I love those things, but I, I really like, once I found this Lippmann plate process um, and that's kind of led me to holography, which is a whole new kind of beast. And again, like, again, my, my interests are really about like light and how are you're capturing light and how we exist in time and space and not necessarily about, oh, look, there's a, a quirky angle on the corner of that street, <laughs> you know, because I think there's people like Jerry, Win- uh, Gary, 
Gary Winogrand, you know, and like he left like hundreds of thousands of rolls of undeveloped film. Um, it, it's more about that, that, that sort of, uh, that, 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 that the thrill of just pushing the button, you know, and getting out there. And like, mm -hmm. it, it was, the camera was a, a, a sort of a medium for him and his experience with the world, you know, and some people like the, for me, I don't know. I look at it like the camera is just a tool, you know, I, I choose to use the Roly the same way somebody uses uh, a marker and I choose to use my four by five the same way, you know, I want to, you know, paint a master style oil painting, you know, um, each one, you know, has a particular set to it, but really like I've fallen so hard into this Lippmann plate stuff and this, this, this holography, they're kind of a, the Lippmann's the bridge between holography and photography, in my opinion. And, um, I'm, I'm, I'm in a deep hole with that now. <laughs> All right, Nick, Nick, I said, you're literally, you're in a basement. <laughs> yeah, Nick. I am. Nick, Nick, right. So you've mentioned Lippmann, you mentioned holography. Now I dare and uh, I'm, I'm a bit hesitant to ask you, really. <laughs> um, so you mentioned Lippmann before we started recording, actually. So t tell listeners a little bit about Lippmann, and then you talked about holography and how one leads to the other. So I don't really understand anything that you're saying about that. So maybe you'd just like to enlighten me and some listeners. Sure. So. 1890, French physicist Gabriel Lippmann, um, doing research on the nature of light, trying to record natural color, uh, discovers that using uh, an ultra fine grain, ultra slow photographic material, one can record a full color um, image that is a surface reflection, right? And the easiest way to think about this, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, is when you walk through a parking lot. And you see a puddle that has full of prismatic colors. There's no color in your puddle. What you have is a thin layer of oil on the surface of the water. And depending on the thickness or thinness of that oil in a particular spot, you'll get a particular color of light that's reflected back because the light passes through the oil and it can't come back at the same path and it's broken apart into individual wavelengths of light. A Lippmann plate does something kind of similar to this. You're using ultra fine grain emulsions. So now Eric was talking about wanting to make his own emulsions, right? And you mentioned the Rolly emulsion that you can just buy. And mm -hmm. we talked about me making my own emulsions for making black and white negatives. A black and white negative might have, even though a very slow dry plate, like what you could purchase from J Lane, ISO 2, right? Really slow by anybody's normal standard. Uh, a Littman plate is going to be like 15 to 20 times slower than that. And the reason is because your grain, if it, a, a normal fine grain, like let's say a Tri-X grain, you know, when fully developed is like the size of a basketball. And then my dry plate grain when fully developed is going to be like the size of maybe a golf ball. Now, the Littman emulsion is going to be the size of maybe the tip of a pencil. So it's so ultra fine grain that you can create this phenomenon, which records um, using the same emulsion, the same, excuse me, not the same emulsion, but the same chemistry, the silver bromo iodide that I use to make my black and white images. If I combine them together in a certain way under controlled circumstances, I make an ultra fine grain emulsion, which can create a Littman image. And what this does is that you're not actually recording the amount of light that hits your plate. So normal film, 
right? You open up your lens, light enters the lens, and it strikes your film sitting on your focal plane. And it records the amount of light, the amplitude of light that has struck this plate in a logarithmic response. So however much, boom, you get hit with all this light and areas that, you know, get struck with light turn back to silver metal and other areas don't. With a Littman plate, it actually works differently. If I were to hold up a Littman emulsion, a Littman plate and a regular dry plate right next to each other, you wouldn't even be able to tell that anything was coated on the Littman plate and the regular dry plate emulsion is going to be milky and opaque. The reason is because the light passes through the Littman plate and the emulsion faces away from the lens. So what you're doing is instead of – this requires a kind of a basic understanding of what light is as well, right? So light is made up of waves and depending on how close the wave is or far apart. So a blue wavelength of light is going to be very close together and a red wavelength of light is – you know has a very long wave. So the nanometer you know from peak to peak is much further apart. But – Understanding that that different colors of light have different wavelengths, okay, you record each individual color. So each individual wave that hits goes through your emulsion and it bends back. So I could pause here for a second. Historically, Littman had to use a mercury chamber. So the plate sat in intimate contact with mercury. The light passes through the plate, hits the mercury, bounces back, and then it's a half a wavelength out of phase. So that means the waves have now moved half a wave apart from one another. So you're not actually recording where the light's hitting the plate, but you're recording now throughout the emulsion where your wavelengths of light are crossing over one another. Now, this is super dense. And basically what it does is it, it creates little tiny planes of silver at different distances all throughout your gelatin emulsion. And what happens then is like the oil on the surface of my oil slick, when I record my image and if it comes out correctly and I look at it with right with white light at the perfect angle, it, the silver is going to break apart the white light that hits it back into that individual wavelength that it recorded. So it'll cancel all the other waves out and just reflect back that one wavelength of light. Now, that's probably like, what the hell are you talking about, Dick? <laughs> it's super dense, and this is the reason it never took off, is because it's very complicated. Exposure times could be like three to four minutes long in full sunlight, and you have to mount them underneath a prism. So one of my plates finished, I can see the color with the surface reflection, but it's really hard to look at. So you actually mount a prism on top of that, and that changes the way that the light moves through so you can actually view your plate underneath without a full color surface reflection. So excuse me, with you can see the full Sur full color surface image, but you won't have the heinous highlight you would if you didn't have the prism on that. So how do, how do holograms tie into this? Well, a hologram and the difference between a hologram and a photograph, the only thing that holography and photography share together is a light sensitive material. And I'm not as well versed on holography as I am at photography. Um, so I wouldn't consider myself a master at this by any means. Um, I understand more than I can necessarily communicate at the moment. I'm still kind of building my language for it. But essentially, a laser beam is a concentrated light source of a single wave, right? So red laser at 600 nanometers, it's putting out a consistent, concentrated 600 degree, you know, nanometer beam of light. It's shooting it out. 
And what you do is you put your light-sensitive plate in front of an object, and like your Lippmann plate, the laser passes through, hits your object, and reflects back through your emulsion, and you're recording where the laser light bounces off one another. And that gets recorded in those tiny little fringes, just like your Lippmann plate. Um, and you can make a hologram using uh, uh, the same sort of emulsion that you would use to make a Lippmann plate. And how I kind of figured this out was I was doing the Lippmann plate research and I started seeing that, oh, look, people buy commercially manufactured holographic plates because it's a panchromatic, which means it's sensitive to red, green, and blue light, unlike a dry plate, which could just be sensitive to blue light, just be sensitive to blue and green, or be made sensitive to red, green, and blue light. A hologram is sensitive to red, green, and blue light, and it's ultra-fine grain. So that means, again, the, the silver particles are 10,000 times smaller than the silver particles I would use for my normal dry plate emulsion. And I, people buy these commercially manufactured holographic plates and I said, well, wait a second. If you can – they buy those hologram plates and they use them to make Lippmann images. And I said, if you can go that way and I'm pointing left to right, you should be able to go this way. And now I'm pointing right to left. So I can make a Lippmann emulsion. I should be able to make a hologram with it. And so it works. Uh, it's really freaking cool. And um, holography, like the chemical part I have figured out, now it's uh, – you know, it's all about positioning your laser and making sure that, you know, your geometry of your setup is very precise and accurate because even the slightest deviation can kind of throw that uh, out of whack. And I have to go as far as to everything's on the floor in my basement on heavy. So I have an optical table and I have a 75 pounds plate of steel. And these are all up on top of uh, inner tubes on my cement floor in the basement. And then I have to turn off my freezer, my fridge. I have to turn the heat off to the house because any vibration in the room between the plate and the subject, and even this, we can't even see it, but the, the vibrations are there. Um, that can ruin the hologram exposure, which is totally wild. But you can use the same chemistry to make a holographic image that I can use to make a Lippmann image that I can use to make a black and white negative, and that just boggles my mind, you know. And I, I just I love it, and it, that's kind of my obsession is, uh, you know, how are you using these things, and how are you capturing light, and uh, then I put it together because the traditional sense of just making a print making a negative, making a print, sticking it in a frame and saying, well, I'm going to charge $3,000 for this now. Like, what would he do? You know, but to make, that's why I like, I dig on Wayne stuff. Cause like Wayne makes the camera, right? Like then he goes back to the traditional path of making a print and stuff like that. But I love that he makes the camera. So for me, you know, I did you, some of you guys, I know Eric, you saw it. Um, but I did that my last like show that I had two years ago, Actually, in 2019, um, was seeing shadows. That was all. That was again. This was more fantastical photography, storytelling, not really like photojournalism or anything like that. But it was about creating. I want these pictures to feel like little movie sets that you're looking. Are these at. The, these the, 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 the ones with the guys, guys in hood, in, hood, in, hood, in Yeah, hood. all the the creepy characters and the monsters mm -hmm. and stuff like that in the forest. Um, and I, but the you guys have only seen them online but what the show was awesome we had a show here in rochester and then we had a show down in jersey city and the show here in rochester there was we probably had like 200 people show up i think at like you know uh at like its peak there was it was packed 
But what I did was I didn't want to just make prints. What I, I, I took my negative and I would contact print onto unexposed dry plates and make positives on glass. Then I would make ground glass and then I would package this all together and I made um, little viewing boxes. And uh, the easiest way to kind of picture this in your head was like everyone – everyone, <laughs> most people of a certain age group um, are familiar with um, you know, the little view masters when you were little kids. But instead of a stereo view, this is a monocular view, right? So I had one little lens and you drop your plate in and there was a light source behind it and you had to look through this, right? And you had to kind of peer around. And I made sure the lenses were mounted backwards um, so that you had to search through it and you only got a center focus. You didn't have a sharpness all throughout your frame there. And all of the stuff was shot on large format. Um, and what I was actually doing was I shot two by five. So I would coat four by fives and cut them in half. And then I would 3D print spacers that um, they look like big sticks of bubble gum. And they would kind of go in my printing frame and they would just allow the plate to ride in the center. And then I had two masks on the back of my four by five. So I was always making true two by five shots. There was no cropping or anything like that. So it was like a real, you know, panoramic kind of frame there. Um, and I made these, all these little objects. Some, I would, sometimes I would throw the negative in the enlarger and I would enlarge it on like a four by 10 piece of glass. And I made these things with like hand cranks that you had to turn like a little hand drill that was connected to a DC motor, but you'd spin it backwards. So like you turned it into a generator instead of a motor. Um, so you're actually generating the light and stuff like that, but then you kind of had to interact with it. And now that's kind of bad because of the, you know, the pandemic. So I don't want people touching stuff. And I really learned when you have interactive stuff, people beat the crap out of your stuff. So I'm kind of moving away from that, but it was the idea that you're not like, I could make a little picture, you know, with my little peep show. And then you have to put your eye up to this lens. And now the, the, it fills your whole field of vision. Right. So it was how can I make a little picture and now I make it like gigantic because I hate going to galleries and seeing like huge color sea prints of, you know, boring, vapid scenes and stuff like that, you know. But I was like, how do you, you make a big picture with a little picture, you know? You're not allowed to get in the same place at the same time with with Wayne ever. <laughs> No, I like Wayne's stuff though. <laughs> no, again, it's just like uh, no Wayne's stuff. Wayne's stuff's on a different level though, you know, because he's he's creating this stuff, you know, kind of from scratch, and then he's using it. You know, again, Wayne is a painter, right? And Wayne's using photographic materials the way a painter would choose gouache or oil and that's my favorite type of photographer is that when they when they choose their material to fit their body of work they're not just saying i'm making tintypes look at my tintypes because i've seen it i've seen endless amounts of tintypes now tim types are boring to me but it's like show me something cool you got look at a guy like alex timmermans he's shooting tintypes but like he has these fantastical sort of like you know, magical little scenes. I'm like, that's fun. I want to look at that. I, there's some crazy Russian and like, you know, Eastern Bloc dudes doing some wild stuff with the, you know, Collodian too. But like a lot of it's just kind of boring. Like, all right, great. Another, you know, three quarter length portrait. <laughs> right. But well, I, was, I, was saying that. I don't want to, sh- I don't want to crap on it too bad because again, like 
kind of being cyclical, you know, it's cool to go. I love having a tintype portrait. Everybody should go out and support their local tintype photographer. Go and get that three-quarter length portrait and pop it on your shelf and keep it because they're really cool and they're going to last longer than any digital picture that you ever take. But like people are serving, they're filling that niche because like you go to a place like Austin, Texas or New York City or San Francisco or Portland, you're going to find people, Richmond, Virginia, you know, making – uh, you know, having tintype portrait studios and like, it's really cool. And you should go and have that experience because it's fun. And like, I'm kind of like, I, I, I don't want to sound, I'm kind of salty with a lot of that stuff. Cause I just see so much stuff. So like everything kind of becomes homogenous after a while, but like, I shouldn't be so grumpy because there are a lot of people doing cool things out there. But for me, it's like when somebody can make me pause on Instagram and go, Whoa, that's when you know, you, you hit it. Uh, yeah nick i I was saying the two of you can't get in the same place at the same time because you both go like for lack of a better term narrow and deep in your respective like interests yeah that if you find a way to combine those two completely different but also completely in some way similar narrow and deep like mental like and artistic focuses (sighs) with with the way he he builds and makes cameras and the way like you're talking about doing the presentation and all sort of stuff and like it would be it would be kind of ridiculous. It would be fun, but it would be ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Andrew, you <laughs> say something? No, no, it, it was me. And um, okay. and I'm just, just thinking there, I, I think we've only asked you three questions. Um, so, so, um, and um, so, so I'm I'm thinking before we before we started, uh, we we talked about how lo- how long that we uh, we we have with you, and I think we've already gone over that point. Um, we have a little. We can. We got a little bit more time. If okay, we that, that, that 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 that's that's good. That's good. Um, this um, Nick, Nick the, uh, the the images you've been describing, uh, and listeners to the show. If they want to go to nickbrandreth.com and look on what I guess is is the most recent body of work, which is uh, Seeing Shadows. Uh, while you've been talking, Nick, I've just been – I love the way this is presented because you can just flick through the images almost like like a little story unfolding. I don't understand the story, but I can, I can see there's a narrative here. There's a door and there's weird people in Ku Klux Klan clothing and then there's a guy hiding and – and people in the in a wheat field, and you were you were describing this. I'm looking at this these these images on a fairly big screen, but you were describing something, and I was struggling to get my head around it. Kind of immersive. So, are people looking at these images as a story, like you know um, what the butler saw type thing? And and are these images coming up in in a narrative in front of them, or how how does, how, how are people actually experiencing these images? Because I didn't really understand what you were saying. Sure. I mean, when you came to the show, like the show, there was a sequence, you know, and there was kind of like there was a little bit of text on the wall. And I actually published a book, too. So I think I only have like we published like a a hundred of them. I probably only have like 20 of them left. Um, But we made the book and the book has a little bit of a flow to it. So there's there's text with the different sections. And my website, my website's in dire need of uh, being updated. Um, The works, you know, again, seeing shadows is current, but like I want to fix how I interact with it. And I would actually put some of the objects that I uh, show on there um, because there were several facets to the show and they changed between the two shows. So like when you came into the gallery space, you, you walked into one room and there was kind of like text, almost like you were going into a sideshow and there was a little prompt. Um, and actually, here, if you don't mind, I'll read it to you. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, where is it? I should have one right here. So there's some text and it's on the thing. And this kind of, you know, it's the idea was to set the mood. And I guess this will kind of give you an idea of what I was talking about. And I'll give you a little deeper background to it. And the Phantasmagoria. So the, the title of the show is N.M. Brandreth's Phantasmagoria Presents Seeing Shadows. And a Phantasmagoria, again, back to photo history, is sort of like proto-horror theater. And mm. it actually predates photography in a way. But it was, uh, I think, in my mind, uh, was most popular in the era of photography and what it was is people would come together and you would go to a, a theater and they would have like smoke and mirrors and different rear projection screens and they would show lantern slides of demons and ghosts and ghouls and you know they would zoom them in and out or you know shoot the the light through the smoke so it looks like there's a skull floating in the room and you have to remember most people have no concept of photography or image making so like the idea that you could see a floating skull like would have bamboozled people and I kind of love the idea of that and photography in the beginning again you held it in your hand you didn't put a tintype in a frame and put it on a wall you held a tintype you in your hand next to a window so i wanted to make these things and that's kind of my favorite era of photography was when they would make things more for entertainment like you would have a stereo viewer and then you would go and collect stereo views so like that was my idea to create these little viewing boxes and I called them peep shows so you slide your plates in and look through them but the idea was to create this whole sort of uh, experience the whole phantasmagoria so the phantasmagoria and this is what was on the wall and it would say welcome to the phantasmagoria Imagine, if you will, for a moment that you're walking through a stretch of woods. It's a crisp autumn afternoon, the temperature dropping as the sun wanes in the sky. Out of the corner of your eye, you see something, a dark shape, perhaps a shifting shadow, or maybe something peeking out from behind a tree. You chuckle to yourself. It's silly to be afraid, but out of pure human reaction, you turn to investigate, trying to find a logical explanation. But something is different. Something is there. It's still there, looking back at you. Now be warned. The things you are about to see are real. They have been collected and synthesized into physical form by means of dark arts, permanently burned onto glass so that they may be comprehensible to the mortal psyche. The terrors you witness do exist. They are lurking out there in the world, but have no fear. While you are here, you are protected from harm. However, once you leave, you are on your own. And we hope for your sake that you don't fall prey the terrors added to those inside the phantasmagoria. <laughs> so the whole idea was like, have you ever walked through the woods and you look to the left and you're like, oh, my God, I thought something was there. And it really is nothing there. Well, what would happen if you looked over and you did see something there? <laughs> you know, So is that uh, that that seems to mirror like the more recent piece you did, which is, you know, a Halloween and all that sort of thing. So uh, beyond the technical aspects of your work which obviously you, you might enjoy a little bit, I, I guess. Um, <laughs> there's, there's like that, that darker sort of night, more nightmarish sort of undercurrents of uh, imagination. Is that what catches like your eye in terms of, okay, I've got this, this crazy like technical sort of stuff. Like you've, you've got that, that technical aspect but you're going to apply it towards something like your version of taking the, the, the photo of the, the pretty light in the corner. Yeah. It seems to be sort of darker, right? More nightmarish, more macabre. Is that sure? I've, I've always, true? I've always been, a, I've always been attracted to the macabre and the terrifying and things like that. You know um, it's fun to be afraid. 
Okay. But there's different types of fear. You have um, rational fear and irrational fear. A rational fear is, am I going to get COVID and die? Am I going to lose my job during a pandemic and not have health insurance? That's a rational fear. An irrational right. fear is, is there a boogeyman in my backyard, right? Is there a monster in my closet? Is Michael Myers standing on the other side of that bush? Irrational fears are fun, right? And irrational fears help you to digest and deal with rational fears, right? So – that's the reason we love horror movies. That's the reason why horror has always been around as a literary genre, as a cinematic genre, and it will always be here and never go away because fear is the oldest and most shared emotion. Okay. A deer knows what it's like to be afraid. My dog knows what it's like to be afraid. I can look at a dog and say that dog is afraid and I know what it's like to be afraid, you know? So we all share that fear with one another. So this idea is like, what are we afraid of? How do you tap into these sort of unknown fears? And for me, it goes a little darker, you know, not darker, but deeper. And I really love the idea of, um, you know, multiple planes of reality. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm not a real religious person by any means, but I always say, if you find center in religion, rock on good for you, but don't try to put it in my mouth. Cause I'll spit it in your face. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I like the idea that there's our, we're getting into like, you know, kind of quantum mechanics and things like that, multiple realities and what happens, you know, and I like to think of it kind of like that Lippmann plate where you have layers of silver piled up on one another, like a cake, right? And what happens, you know, if you have two layers of reality sat next to one another, uh, there's got to be a little air or a little gap between that. So what's that space in between? It's like, you want to talk about dark matter and things like that. So like 85% of the universe is made up of something that we don't see and we can't understand, but we know it's there, you know? So like what else is out there, you know? And it's like the idea of, uh, if you ever seen the movie, John dies at the end, there's a scene where he talks about country radio, you know? And it's like right now there's country radio in my room, but you have to tune into it. Right. But if you're not tuned into right. it, you don't know it's there. So what if there are things all around us that we are tuned into that we can't see and we might not be able to see, um, you know, and that, that kind of exists and that what, what happens if once you tune into it, you can't untune from it. And that was kind of the idea with some of the creatures and the monsters there was like, you know, the doorway was this idea that there was a, you know, a passage from one plane of reality to the other. And these kind of characters and creatures are coming through. But you said the they weren't Ku Klux Klan robes, but, you know, the, this idea of a robed figure, a hooded sort of person that's against you in some way that might not be against you, but might not be working in, uh, you know, uh, in your, in your best interest. And for me, um, you know, the English guys might appreciate this, but I know like folk horror is very big. Um, you know, in England, we got like the wicker man and things like that. And I, I love the idea of folk horror and this idea of like the land being able to kind of come back and like take over, you know, and like the planet will always, the planet's been here before us and the planet will be here t when we're gone, um, until the sun explodes and this is all gone. Right. Because that will happen someday, <laughs> you know, but it's like uh, until then, it's like, what if what if there were things that were here before us that we can't see because we're not tuned into them? And if you think about it, like a radio wave, like a radio wave is part of an electromagnetic spectrum and we can see only a very small sliver of that. But all of that other stuff 
is still here. So what if there are creatures or beings that we can't see? So that was kind of what I was kind of trying to dig into with that. And I, I got really into like making all the costumes and all the masks and stuff like that. Um, and then another part of it was a response to what was happening at the time. So like I started making that work right around 2016. So um, Orange Man yeah, politics you know, kind of came into play and, yeah. you know, and, and then you start, uh, you know, it might be similar, but a little different for you guys in England, but it's like, you know, I, I think about the idea of, uh, you know, we, we, we look at the president and we say, Oh, he's the worst. He's doing all these bad things to us, but it's not just him. You know, it's a gaggle of senators and state senators and congressmen and, you know, some guy from podunk middle of nowhere, Iowa casting a vote, you know, that basically says my wife can't have health, uh, you know, health insurance or can't have her birth control taken care of on insurance, or my brother can get fired from his job, you know, for who he chooses to love. Um, and that started to drive me nuts. And it's like these idea that the, these people who you don't know, these sort of figures that can could potentially control your life, whether you want to or not. And I tried to kind of like play into that. So like in my mind, the, sh the hooded figures were not good people in that, you know, in that uh, series of stuff, you know, and that triangle that's kind of floating around there represents kind of like, you know, all the kind of crappy things. And it's just like, what if you have those people? Like, it seems like they're always after that. And have you guys ever seen the movie heavy metal, the animated movie? Oh, yeah. Nope. The classic. And, yeah. And there's the Orlock or whatever its name is. It's the orb that floats from, uh, from like, you know, he basically goes from galaxy to galaxy and place to place. And it's just the sum of all evil. So in my mind, that's kind of what the, the pyramid represented. It was just like, you know, the sum of all evil, if you will. And then, you know, these ideas kind of spawned into a, a, one short film, which kind of launched into another short film, which um, my buddy and I put together. And it, it, it leans a little bit more into the creature and the triangle, um, not so much the hooded figures, but like the creature, the triangles, the doorways and these alternate realities. And we actually made this uh, short film and we're in like, I think like 15 different film festivals. We got nominated in one film festival for best cinematography, but we didn't win. Um but that movie was definitely out there. Was, I made it with my friend Dan Bowers. Um, him and I have been making short films together for a long time now. Um, and we're going to – we keep making stuff. We're, we're kind of in the process of a couple other things. And um, we have a fun way of making films. We kind of trade roles back and forth and uh, you know handle different things. But Dan's a visual effects artist in the city. Um, and he's got a very odd mind and I have a very odd mind. And we connect together uh, really well, which is um, – which is fun. And I was sharing my work with him when I was shooting that project and he's like, Oh, we got to make something. And that turned into something else, which, you know, <laughs> you know, it's always yeah, something real. weird, but that was really it for me. It was like, again, it's like when you start doing photography, you have to decide, like follow your bliss. You know what I mean? And it's like, if, like I said, I was teasing earlier, but if like, if taking pictures of girls and bikinis in abandoned warehouses is what, you know, lights your fire, do it, man. Like, don't let me, you know, some, Heard who just makes holograms and litman plates in his basement tell you know queer your pitch like run it you know and 
I, I, that's what I, I want people to kind of, you know, get after. But for me, that was what always sparked my passion. And what really tickled me was kind of like, I love horror movies. I love horror comics. I love horror stories. And it doesn't necessarily have to be horror, but I also like psychological thrillers. The idea of cosmic horror always excites me. Like HP Lovecraft is one of my favorites, even though he's the terrible racist. But I, I always try to point that out. <laughs> So, um, yeah, the, the, the whole show, <laughs> you know, was to try to get people to interact in a different way with photography, you know, and like photography is just part of it. Um, and to kind of, you know, a little bit further, one of the things I'm doing right now with the holograms is to, again, holography is really cool, but it's really easy to get caught up in all the technical stuff and not make something interesting. So what I've been doing is I've been making all these very small, creepy sculptures of like weird faces and monsters and ghouls and things like that. And I'm actually going to use those to make holograms and I'm building these little wooden boxes and I'm wiring in an Arduino with a microcontroller and a motion sensor. So what, and, and some lights. So when you get up close to it, instead of having to touch it or interact with it, the motion sensor will pick you up. It'll imagine what it is. It's just imagine a, a box and then you have a dollhouse door on the front. So a little tiny door. And I have this kind of thing with doorways I don't know why. I think I do, but that's another conversation. Um, and and when you get close, the door is going to go. It'll open up. It'll turn on the light. You'll see the hologram of the ghoul, and then the light will turn off. The door will close, and that's your interaction with the piece. Which I, you know, I just I don't know. I love that. I love that you can use photography as part of what you're trying to do, but it doesn't have to rely on like, look, I'm doing photography, which is, I think, what a lot of people. And again, there's nothing wrong with it, but I, I, I've moved away from that. You know, I after you blow the shutter out of six digital cameras, you're I've taken all the pictures I need to take. <laughs> right. your, your work well, certainly. Like sorry, Eric, go on. Go ahead. After you, no, Andrew. I was going to say your your work is certainly taking an interesting turn. When you look back on your on your site, um, Nick, I, I was struck by a, a, a more sort of conventional approach to. Uh, to photography i mean you, uh, i was looking at the body of work called the quest and there's certainly a narrative well i think there, there seems to be a story going on there somewhere but it's not the kind of dark horror tomes is it you you you've got this desire to tell a story in pictures so it seems um you know i was interested in that sort of journey you've made from that sort of work with the quest i don't know what the quest is about because there's no words with it sure. but it starts off with a, a beautiful portrait of a guy leaning in a doorway a doorway again and then, you know, images of a dog and a car and uh, some houses and so on and so forth. My path is kind of interesting. So I, I, I was born into photography through street photography. And okay. my, fir my first mentor in photography was a fellow named Mel DiGiacomo. And he's still alive and well. You should look him up, Mel DiGiacomo. Um, he was really he, – he shot for Sports Illustrated. He shot for – um, Newsweek. He shot for Tennis Weekly a lot, but he, you know, he he made this. He made uh, the most beautiful black and white street pictures that always kind of stuck with me. But he was part of the end of that era, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of that late eight. That you know, I think it kind of went away in the eighties um, and kind of fizzled out in the nineties. Um, but you know, kind of the photography you'd expect to see, you know, from Cartier-Bresson or um, Cart uh, Andre Cortez or something like that. And Mel was my first, you know, he, Mel has work in the Museum of Modern Art. He has, 
you know, some of his rugby pictures are in the permanent collection there and things like that. And I remember I, the first time I went to Mel's studio and I, I had pictures of little flowers and things like that. Cause that was the first thing I took pictures of. And he, he handed me some books and among them were like at Jay, uh, Cartier Brisson, uh, William Klein, um, who else was there in, uh, Callahan, um, and he took those pictures and he goes, don't ever show me this shit again. Hands me a roll of Trix and he goes, go take pictures like this. So I kind of cut my teeth doing street photography and I, I love it, but it burns me out because I feel exploitive when I do it um, because it's not, it's not the same as it was, you know, and it's just like now I'm just a white guy walking around in a crummier neighborhood taking pictures of people because they look more gritty than they do in suburbia. Um, but you know, you can do make, you can make great street pictures in the suburbs, but not as many people walk around outside in the suburbs. But I started really doing that. And I really thought I'd be a photojournalist. And I went to RIT. I was going to study photojournalism. And our first day of PJ class, I was like, this isn't for me. I figured I'd study advertising photography because I'd learn more about the business and the back end of photography and things like that and lighting and studio. And it was a good move. Um, but when I got out of school, I ended up in the Eddie Adams workshop, which is a essentially a weekend long intensive photojournalism storytelling course that you have to submit a portfolio to get into. And, um, only a hundred students from around the world. And Eddie Adams, if you're not familiar, took that picture of the North Vietnamese police officer being shot. Um, oh, right. Okay. And yep. so Eddie created this workshop when he came back from Vietnam and essentially it's been going on for like 25 years. And it's kind of like, a uh, it's a way to help improve you as a student, but it's a, it's a nice place that, uh, they can, uh, the, the industry can pluck kind of budding young talent. And from there I started shooting a lot for, you know, right out of school. And while I was in college, I was shooting for the Bergen record, which is North Jersey's newspaper. And then I started doing a lot of work for the wall street journal. And I did a lot of stuff for Mercedes Benz and I did tons of edit, uh, advertising and editorial, like assisting work, but I also did my own editing, uh, excuse me, my own like editorial stuff. And my primary strength at that point, when I got out of school was portrait photography. Um, uh, but I always fancied myself a sort of documentary photographer, you know, but more the sort of gritty like reportage style of photography, Antonin Kratokerville, you know, like Magnum, Seven, those kinds of guys. Um, but I, I quickly realized working for the newspaper that I'm a terrible journalist and I'm a good photographer, but I'm a terrible journalist. And, you know, quite contrary, you know, to what's going on in this country right now, I didn't really want to have to be bound by the truth um, with my pictures. And I, I when I first I, I told you I moved up to the museum and I worked for free for a year. And then, um, you know, when I got hired, I, I did this uh, thing where I launched a Kickstarter and um, I did this project upstate. And upstate was to document areas of upstate New York that could be potentially affected by fracking, which is high pressure, um, you know, gas drilling. Um, and they banned that in New York State. But I did this project on the four-year moratorium of that. And I traveled all over the state to areas where there is existing gas and oil infrastructure and areas through, through my research would potentially affect people if they had to, um, you know, give up uh, their oil rights or, you know, their mineral rights to their land or something like that or get boned by eminent domain. And, you know, I had all these great high hopes and this great idea and I did a Kickstarter and I raised all this money and then I kind of failed. Um, I did a really, you know, I think the pictures worked really well. It took a long time to get all of the 
the rewards back to people. But the reason it took so long is because, you know, sometimes when you ask big questions and you go looking for big answers, you find really big questions. Excuse me. You find when you ask big questions, you find big answers. And sometimes you don't like the answers that you find. And it really burned me out. Um, and it, it was kind of sad to see, you know, what a leviathan the gas and oil industry is, how long it's been around, how deeply entrenched it is, and how little you can really do anything against it. And it really kind of killed me. Um, and then I had to go and make like a hundred salt prints and things like that, and a hundred inkjet prints and carbon prints and do all this stuff. And like, I didn't even want to think about the project anymore, but then I had to do that. So um, I realized that I wasn't going to do the Kickstarter so that like any work that I would do, I would fund myself and then, you know, try to sell or, you know, get the exposure that way. Uh, Cause I didn't want that Kickstarter experience again, even though I learned a lot from it. Um, but I realized, you know, that's not the way that I want to work. And I, I didn't want to have to be bound by the truth. So I shifted to this more fantastical approach and it took a while till I got there. You know, I had to find the right way to, I was masking my plates for a while and then I started making the spacers. So there's a, a progression to kind of get to where I was with that. And the quest is actually, um, that was actually, that was all the work that I made in the year of my apprenticeship. So like my sort of quest from, you know, leaving my life as a freelance professional photographer and sort of becoming the character that I am now, you know, and, um, you know, all the weird stuff that I kind of encountered in between that. And I kind of like to leave it ambiguous though, to like kind of let you make up your own narrative. Like even with the seeing shadow stuff, like I have an idea of what it means to me and kind of what's going on, but like, it's fun to just leave it open-ended, you know, and like what the hell's going on here? Cause a lot of it is like, you can look at them as like single images too, which I, I wanted to make sure that like what I always, what I'm not always a fan of is like when looking at photos, series and groups of images that you have like that, that in-between picture, you know what I mean? That like, if you're telling a story as a, a photojournalist, you might need that to supplement, to help carry the story. But like, you know, if you looked at all these pictures, you know, as a book in a series, sure, this makes sense. But I wanted to make sure that each one of them, like as a single image was rad and had something fun to it. And you have to really take your time with the pictures because some of the stuff you look at them once and then if you look at them again, you'll find something else hidden there. So there's a lot of long exposures. Some of the pictures, you look at them first and you don't see stuff that's in there. Um, it, it was really cool. And I learned a lot from this project too. And I learned that, you know, um, I'm never going to work on a body of work again that I have to rely on, you know, more than maybe one other person to help me out with. Um, because that was the, the hardest part about making that work is that, you know, people were excited to be in the pictures and to be part of the process, but, you know, on Monday I'd post something like, Hey, I need some models for this weekend. And I wish I could have paid people, but I just didn't have the budget to do that. Um, you know, especially when I was making all the props and things like that for the series. Um, and then I had to make all of the, you know, ways to display it. So I didn't really have money to pay my model. So again, I relied on, you know, friendships and favors, but you know, five people on Monday would be like, yeah, I want to shoot with you. And then come Saturday when it's time to shoot, one person would show up and it'd be like, wow, this sucks. So I had to kind of uh, change a lot of the shots because a lot of them were kind of thought out ahead of time, you know, kind of like a movie. Um, but I have some ideas for some new work that I want to kind of work on, but you know, COVID really 
slowed me down this year. And I, I had a tough year kind of personally, you know, we had to take care of a family member. Um, I had lost one of my dogs and, you know, then just like the general pandemic and stuff like that. So I'll probably come back a little bit harder next year. I have a, a neat idea I'm going to work on with a friend of mine. And I, I have several ideas that are very big projects that are like on the back burner, but the winter time is basically going to be devoted to, um, holography and you know kind of making a creepy body of work using like holograms and stuff like that and to be able to tell some weird story like that um the boxes that i have in mind have you guys ever seen the movie cabin in the woods probably sounds like the sort of thing i'd have watched so it's like the yeah yeah essentially you have like you have all the classic horror tropes the stoner the ditzy blonde the you know the smart the jock guy and they go into the woods and it turns out that they're part of like this bigger plan for a sacrifice but they have like uh, essentially like a machine that you know like lets out like so if you choose uh you touch the altoids tin inside of the house then like little peppermint demons come and kill you or something like that if you touch the fish tank fish man comes and kills you so it's kind of like a dark comedy but there's one scene where they go inside of this facility and you can see all of the monsters and all of the ghouls and they're all in these little like cubes like these little containment chambers and that's kind of my idea for these little weird boxes is that like, imagine if you like kind of walk through and like, we've all seen ghostbusters and like that always thrilled me. The idea that like the ghostbusters would use the traps to capture the ghosts. And then they would put them all in like this, like big old ghost pot, <laughs> you know? And like, what would happen if you open that up and you could see Slimer and all his buddies in there. So I want to kind of make like a series of these weird ghoul holograms. <laughs> well, I think on, on, on that note, uh, we'll uh, we'll bring proceedings to well we'll start start to close things down. Um, Nick, it's been absolutely fascinating having you on the show. Thanks, man. I'm glad to come on again, and we can talk more concentrated about other subjects too, if you want. We can specifically talk about process, or specifically talk about four by five shooting. You know, kind of scattershot. I can go all over the place. <laughs> yeah, it, it, well, it, it was certainly a case of uh, I think the the, the the three of us were thinking, do we dare ask a supplementary question to any of these points? Uh, so, I think um, yes, I, I think that would be a very good idea. If we, if you're we, a good value guest, Nick, we like good value guests. Oh yes, oh yes, yes yeah. Um, they adopted me because I'm a good value guest. <laughs> that's very true, very true. Um, and <laughs> I, I think we are we are a little bit short of time, um, so emails will we'll have to skip emails this time. Um, but what I don't want to skip well, there's is, some. Um, I've got at least one. Um, so oh, uh, who knows? I've had a chance to even go go to the email page. So, uh, um, but what I um, I definitely want to say thank you to those people that have uh, managed to find us. Um, on the uh, on coffee.com uh, and uh, made donations to the show because we've had more than I think we've ever had in one go. Um, so I just want to run through uh, the, the the people first. So from the 9th of November, um, thanks for thanks for another great show. Sincerely, Tim Boone. Thank you very much, Tim. And then there's Sioist. Uh, um, struggle with that name. Um, and he goes, Dear Eric, the last show was with Jim was a real treat. I particularly enjoyed the discussion you had on the subject of lenses with your two English guests. Um, I, I, 
<laughs> I know they are saving hard for an outside broadcast unit. So here's a few quid. All the best. Like, thank you very much, Cyrus. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah, we I think we 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 can afford one. Um, anyway, so uh, Jonathan, um, you have the best guests. We do. That is very very true. Um, so thank thank you, Jonathan. Um, and then he whose name I cannot pronounce. Um, as uh, donated again, and that's Aram Havaniao. I, th I, I think that's Finnish. I think, um, but he's got some. He's got like little birds that go over the, over the A's. So, so next time, um, you throw some coffee money at us. Uh, spell your name phonetically for Simon yeah, to read yeah, out, please. Please, please yes. <laughs> put, us, put us out of my misery at least. Anyway, um, and uh, and he says I have been thoroughly impressed with your last series of guests. Um, mm. Thank thank you for introducing them to me. Well, thank thank you, Aaron. Um, oh, and he's back. He did it twice um, on the fifteenth of November. He, he, yeah, but he came back and said, and a coffee for Eric as well. Um, so, um, so hey, excellent, excellent. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, then we got uh, Nick Smith. Um, I have I have enjoyed the way the podcast is developing and growing with your excellent guests. Uh, coffee for the pair of you. Ask Eric if um, ask Eric and your next guest. Oh, oh uh, pair of you. Ask Eric. As in that's your name, Eric. You're ask Eric, not Eric. You're ask Eric. Um, and your and your next guest. Uh, keep going. Well, th thank you very much, Nick. Um, then we got Bill Two. Um, oh. who says a coffee for Andrew, Eric and Simon. I'm presuming Eric has now completed in, his internship and is now on the books. Uh, well, he's, he's still in his probation period, but, you know, he's yeah. doing I'm pretty well. I'm still being hazed. <laughs> yeah. um, and then finally, uh, uh, Juan um, says uh, a coffee for each of the hosts. Um, I just got uh, my first 10 by 15 centimeter uh, film uh, which is as close to ultra large format as as I've ever been. I not very well. Uh, well done. You're heading in the right direction, Juan. So and, and thank thank you very very much. Um, right. Um, let's um, quickly go back to Nick. And have you got any shout outs, Nick? Well, first, I, yeah, I guess I just have to give the Eastman Museum a shout out. And you know, um, I. For all my staff, uh, my coworkers and my colleagues, um, you know, for everybody through all the great work that they put in from exhibitions to just even like the, you know, the cleaning people there. Um, you know, I just appreciate being part of that institution and having the opportunity to do what I do uh, there. And um, shout out to Jason Lane for, um, you know, pushing the limit and um, helping make photography more accessible to people because, uh, you know, you can make that jump from Instax, but then it's really hard to make your own emulsions, but to have someone out there saying like, hey, I want to try to make my own glass plate. And glass plates are easy because you can develop them under red sapelite. So shout out to Jason. Uh, and uh, I'll give a mini shout out to my buddy Lee down in Australia because I know Lee will probably listen to this. And Lee's a great emulsion maker too, Lee Lira. Um, and then, uh, thanks for my wife, uh, for putting up with all my bull crap. Um, and, you know, and all the, you know, weird stuff that I do, <laughs> you know, I couldn't do any of it without her. So, uh, yeah. And if, if anybody's interested, uh, shout out to you guys. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the time to just kind of, you know, 
spout and let let me loose, you know. <laughs> but um, if anybody has any questions, I can talk just like this all the time. Um, you know, I have my friend Telmo in Portugal who I've been helping, you know, really closely, and he's actually making Lippman plates now. Um, you know, it's just uh, I'm, I love to help people. I want you to succeed. I want you to make the pictures that you want to make. And if you have a, if you're caught up on something, um, I want to help you. So just you know, I'm here. I, I want to get you pumped because I'm excited about what I do. And if anybody has any questions or comments or anything like that, you can hit me up on um, Instagram. It's just uh, at Nick Brandreth. Pretty sh- straightforward. Be, you know you'll see my notes. You put my name in the notes so they can spell it. You can visit my website, but um, that's going to be getting updated once the snow starts falling this winter and we don't have as much to do outside. But um, again, thanks guys. I really appreciate it. And um, I'd love to come back on and chat with you some more. Well, it's, it's been great. And funny enough about you know, people asking you questions, yeah. <clears throat> um, Jason Lane did actually say uh, something on the lines of Jason. He's put, he's put this in quotes as if, like, you know, uh, I'm reading this out for you. But uh, Jason asked, "What are your thoughts on shipping books overseas?" Um, oh, which geez. I guess that's something that you over you understand more than um, I do at the moment. That question. Uh, so yeah, I. Uh, oh my gosh! <laughs> he told you to ask me this. <laughs> you, 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 you don't. You he, don't. You don't have to answer. No, that it's one. funny. So my, buddy Lee, the, my buddy Lee, who I gave that shout out to down in Australia, um, uh, and John Hilty. I want to give a shout out to John Hilty in Michigan. John is probably one of the only people in the world right now. My, I think he is the only people in the world person in the world successfully making autochromes. And John helped me um, when I was in my infancy with uh, Lippman Plate and also Philippe Alvarez in Portugal. But uh, the of the book, and then I will end with this for me. Um, I was very close with, and if you're active on uh, formerly APUG, now Photo Trio, um, you'll come across a character on there named Photo Engineer. Photo Engineer was Ron Mowry. Um, and Ron was um, my mentor into emulsion making. Um, I met Ron through Mark at the museum. And Ron was very – Ron was uh, quintessential um, in me becoming who I am today. Uh, and Ron took me under his ring. Uh, Ron was a, a emulsion engineer at Eastman Kodak during the glory days. And what was his surname, uh, Nick? Ron Mowry, M-O-W. I remember – I remember that 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 internet handle photo engineer. He would just pop onto threads and just like knowledge bomb people. Just yeah, like, it was crazy. Oh. And like he was smart. He was a chemical engineer, and like I, I I fancy myself a pretty clever dude. But Ron just made me feel so dumb sometimes. But Ron wrote this book, and it was like it's the it's a very important book on emulsion making, and it was very rare. And uh, Ron had a few of them left, and um, he gave them to me and let us sell them. And the funding from the books uh, came as revenue for us at the museum to help us out because the museum's a nonprofit. And but Ron was just Ron was my best friend, and I lost my grandfather, you know, in the early two thousands. Um, and um, Ron kind of filled that void in my heart, um, you know, as a sort of older guy, I called him my Kodak grandpa and I would just call him at night just to talk. We wouldn't even talk about photography sometimes, but, um, Ron wrote these books in there. If you can get your hands on a copy from someone else there, there's none left. And, um, they're really rare. <laughs> and when Ron passed away in March, um, I, his grandson invited me over with Mark to his house and basically said, whatever's left in the dark room, you guys can take. 
And oh. going through the house, um, and Ron gave me a lot of equipment. The Bronica that I use, Ron gave to me. Um, going through the house, I found two manuals left. So now these are the only two Ron Mowry manuals left in the planet besides my copies. You know what I mean? But I'm not selling those. And as I have two of them. And Lee, I told Lee, if he, he said, you ever find one, let me have it. So I was like, Lee, Lee, I found one. And I had another person, I believe Philippe, uh, but a different guy in Sweden. I, he messaged me and said, if you ever have another one, please let me have it. So I said, hey, guys, you're not going to believe this, but I found two more copies. I sent them out the same day. And a week later, Philippe's arrived in – if I'm saying his name wrong, I apologize. His arrives in Sweden, no problem. Lee's didn't arrive and months go by and months go by. And then it shows up at his front doorstep and it was soaking wet. So I think that they oh. put it on like a shark and they sent it there to Australia. Um, and it got stuck in Hong Kong. So I guess the shark went to Hong Kong first and then then it ended up – in Australia somehow. And it was, he's like, it was soaking wet. It was smelly. And I'm pretty sure there's black mold growing on it. And he went through and got like whatever he dried each page individually with a hair dryer. And then like Lee's sending me this information and like, he's texting me this stuff, but like on Instagram and like, I didn't get it in time. And he's like, I can't believe you're not answering me. I'm like, Lee, I'm sorry. I didn't see your text. <laughs> and I felt so freaking bad. Cause like the one guy, like my one buddy who I want to get this book to, who I know, you know, will really value it. Not that the other people who have them don't value it, but I was so excited to give him a copy and it gets freaking destroyed. And this, so now it's kind of a joke between Lane and Lee and I. And <laughs> again, I'm sorry, Lee. And I'm still working with the post office to try to get the money back, but I have to go through all this online crap. And yeah, so that was the story about sending Lee the ultra rare emulsion book that got destroyed, you know. And I should have insured it for more money, but I didn't. <laughs> so uh, th thank you, Jason, for your question. Uh <laughs> 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 um, right. Just, Jason, um, by the way. He and I still have to get on on one of these podcasts and, and get drunk together. I think that was the original that that, that that's the right. original plan. The, the, the two of you on the Classic Lenses podcast needs to happen. So uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, we, while we, drinking whiskey. Yeah, it, 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 that does need to happen. Um, right. So um, yep. er, Eric, um, do you have any shout what? outs? <laughs> well, definitely shout out as always to my long suffering fiance. Uh, for putting up with my shenanigans because as we moved, I just discovered more cameras that I didn't remember that I had. And <laughs> my part of the new house got larger until the point where I pretty much at this point have the garage. I have a man cave of photography once we unpack and put everything away. So very excited for me. Very thankful for my fiance. Um, and then just like you guys for putting up with my with my stuff, and uh, Nick, dude, for helping with the bike rooms and and popping on. We are definitely gonna go ride bicycles. That's Hell yeah! Photographs. Right. Um, for sure, for sure. Okay, and uh, Andrew, same same for you. Well, really, I just want to thank people who contribute really actively to the large format photography podcast Facebook group. And yeah, I was, that group's uh, awesome. And I and I think you know people like Gre former. Guest on the show in the early days, Greg Obst. 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 How do you pronounce Obst? Obst. Obst. Yes, him anyway. OBSD. Obst. So he printed. He shared something yesterday. Um, some stuff. A simplified zone system um, article by Fred Picker and 
stuff about metering and printing. I haven't read it all yet, but it looks really interesting. And it's still, you know, sharing that kind of information into the group and being, you know, really helpful and the folks are super friendly and really, you know, keen to give advice. So thank you to, you know, those people who make the Facebook group a really lovely place to be. And Facebook isn't always a lovely place to be, you know, but certainly oh, our, certainly this group is. Yeah. So thank you for contributing, all of you. And um, actually, before we start, we do the bit about emails and things like that. Um, I just want to do a uh, shout out to our uh, our friend uh, Colleen, Colleen Devereaux, um, mm-hmm. and uh, who uh, looks after uh, after Flickr. And he mentioned, um, which I didn't actually respond, so I'm sorry about this, Colleen. Um, about uh, this, um, uh, when's when's this when's this. Uh, uh, this this virtual drink going to happen? Oh well, yeah, I didn't respond to that either. Yeah, well, next week, next oh. week it's going to happen. Um, yeah, I think he meant just us three. Yeah, well, this sort of got hijacked by by Eric, so it's all Eric's fault. And uh, what? Uh, yes, what? and uh, and what we're going to do on the fifth? On the it'll come it'll come back on the on the fifth of December, uh, which is as we speak in in eight days that uh, podcast will probably go out tomorrow so i'll be make that seven days so the 5th of december which is a saturday and at seven o'clock uk time you're gonna have to work out what that is everywhere everywhere else um but we're going to do our second lfpp gathering in the forest uh, i don't know if we're really going to be in the virtual forest this time but uh um we're going to do what we did uh, back in late spring and uh, when we had two guest speakers and we did a group meeting on Google Meet um, and we're going to have two guest speakers again uh, one of, and they will both uh, do a a section um, and they and then followed by a, a, a question and answer uh, section um, and we will have uh, a two former guests uh, again are going to be uh, giving talks and uh, the first one will be Joseph Brunges so he's going to be uh, giving a talk on macro large format macro photography and false perspective photography which is something that when we had him on the show we sort of touched upon that as a bit of a subject and I think we sort of ran out of time and it's pretty fascinating what he does so um, so this is going to be on Google Meet um, and what we'll do we'll give the uh the joining information we'll put that it's out into the facebook group and our um so-called instagram feed uh, our half-assed instagram feed i'll put a i'll put something up on that one and our our second speaker is going to be jim fitzgerald who was our last guest um, because we we just started to talk about his lens collection we never really got a chance to actually uh, uh finish that conversation by any means and is and those people or- have, Sorry. Yeah, or his cameras that he makes. Like he makes his own cameras. We didn't exactly, talk about his cameras. Yeah. So, so yeah, his, his lenses, his cameras, and let's say at the end of that, there will be a Q and A session, and I'm sure there are going to be some questions about carbon printing as well. And so uh, that will be a, a great opportunity to ask those questions. So that's uh, December um, the fifth. To join it, you'll need to have a gmail account that's a google mail account a gmail account to be able to take part on that um, we had a few teething problems last time can't promise it'll be you know how it's going to work this time um, but last time we did restrict the numbers this time i think we had 23 people online at any one point uh, last time um, we'll just put the, uh, the the codes out there and as many people who wish to join 
can join. It's as simple as that. Um, and uh, so we're really looking forward to that. So, uh, um, so yeah, more details on Instagram and uh, in the Facebook group in the, in the days to come. Hope you can you can join us on that one. Um, so, Andrew, um, if people want to send an email into the show and get it read out by Eric one day, um, what's the best way to do that? You can send an email to large format photography podcast at gmail.com that's the one that's the one yes Good. that sounded like a question not a yeah i know yeah i will, uh, <laughs> don't normally get it right that's why yeah. You've been getting it right uh, quite a lot recently, so uh, so, okay, so, so, so well, yeah. well done. Um, That's because I normally have it written down, and I didn't this time because I forgot to. Yeah, um, and then uh, actually, before I say goodbye, uh, Nick, thank you, thank you again for patiently hanging on there as well as we just uh, rabbited on through that. It's been been great to have you on the show again. Yeah, no worries, guys. It was a pleasure. Excellent. Um, yeah, it was fun. And, um, and for me, you can follow me on Twitter as Simon4. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, which is also the name of my website. If you stick a co.uk on the end of that, you'll get my website and uh, where I've got different loads loads of things i'm making in 3d printing and stuff like that that's that's what goes on in there um our music is by kevin mcleod our universally loved music uh, it's called two finger johnny um and that's published by incompetech.com um so that's it so i hope you've enjoyed um, enjoyed it this time and we'll be back in a couple of weeks well, actually no in a week, a week so yeah so goodbye yeah. Bye. Cool. take care guys peace thanks nick <laughs>